One thing that I think anyone with some experience in life knows is that sin separates. It's actually been that way from the beginning when Adam and Eve first sinned in the Garden of Eden. They immediately covered themselves up with fig leaves, putting a barrier between um, themselves because suddenly they were a threat to each other. Suddenly they felt alienated from each other. And it wasn't long before they were hiding from God and finally being banished from the Garden of Eden and even their sons were killing each other. Sin separates. Sin separates us from one another and it separates us from God. To be honest, we don't need to look into the uh, ancient garden to see that. We can look around us. How many families are damaged and broken by sin? How many friendships are ruptured by sin? How many people actually still today feel a strong hunger for God, not quite understanding how they can find God, not realising that the answer has always been there. We find God through being forgiven by God, being reconciled to God, because it's actually our rebellion against God that separates us from him. So the story of Joseph is a familiar one. Familiar to those who've read from the beginning of the Bible, familiar to those who've looked at the world around. It's a, um, a story which is incredibly contemporary. Joseph, remember, belonged to what they call today a blended family. There were four mothers and one father. The father was a bit of a fool. He was the spoilt younger brother. There were resentful older brothers. There was a family row which resulted in a split which lasted for years and years and years. And he himself found himself miles away from his family or from any world that was familiar to him, enslaved in a foreign land. The family uh, um, back home lived on with their father in misery and the brothers wrapped with guilt. And over all of that story, there, there hung an oppressive sense of godlessness. Do you remember back in Genesis 37, God was not mentioned as that family feud developed. We didn't look at it, but in Genesis 38, God turns up in the life of Judah, but actually only as a judge, putting to get to death his uh, two sons for their sins, inducing a terrible fear of God in Judah. For many today, actually, that is a familiar picture. They um, uh, either live without God or they have a vague sense of that God may be fierce. No wonder they don't seek him. But at the beginning of um, chapter 42, we start to see something new. 
We pursued, didn't we, through chapters 39 to uh, 41, how God had worked in Joseph's life, but now we're going to start seeing God working in the rest of the family. God has changed Joseph from a spoilt brat to a, a leader of courage and integrity. God has raised him up from that place of slavery to be Pharaoh's second in command. God has been with Joseph. But there's always been the question hanging in the air, what's God done for the rest of the family? Have they changed? Has the sins of those uh, brothers which tore the family apart been dealt with? Are they reconciled to God? Well, suddenly in chapter 42, the brothers who sold Joseph into slavery sort of re-enter Joseph's life. There is a famine in the whole region and uh, due to Joseph's wise stewardship of Egypt's resources, the only country in the whole world that has grain is Egypt. And so, the ten brothers, verse 3, of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. Jacob didn't send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Also, verse um, 6. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognised them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. This is actually an amazing little turn in the story. Remember, years and years ago, Joseph had been promised that his family would bow down uh, to him. And Joseph's Joseph's dreams have almost been fulfilled. Ten of the brothers, at least, are bowing down to him. Not Benjamin, not their father, but... uh, Almost the dreams have come true. The brothers don't recognise Joseph, but Joseph recognises them, verse 9. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You're spies! You've come to see where our land is unprotected. Interesting reaction. Well, actually, in some ways, entirely understandable. Wouldn't you be angry? If suddenly the brothers would have done you so much harm over all of those uh, 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 years turned up. Now the interesting thing is actually that the author makes it plain that this is not simple anger. Then Joseph remembered his dreams, we're told. The story will go on to record on more than one occasion Joseph actually turning away from his brothers to to weep with deep emotion. Now, Joseph's reaction is not simple rage. It is a deep and complex emotional reaction towards these brothers that we will see working itself out as the story develops. He longs, actually, to be reconciled to his brothers. He loves those brothers still, despite the harm they've done to him. But he knows that something very, very important must happen before he can be reconciled to them. They must demonstrate repentance.
Perhaps those brothers could be us. As we've read this story over the uh, previous weeks, of course, we've eagerly identified with Joseph, haven't we? A young man who was unjustly treated, who enjoyed God's presence, who won moral victories, who eventually saw God blessing him abundantly. It's very easy to identify with Joseph. But perhaps we should identify with the brothers too. Perhaps there's more about the, of the brothers about us than we would like to think. Maybe actually we need this morning to learn their lesson. Maybe we need to find, as the brothers will find, repentance. Reconciliation, perhaps with other people, but more profoundly, reconciliation with God. Joseph locks his brothers up for three days, no doubt to work out what he should do about them. And then he devises a plan that will unfold over the next few chapters. And in many ways, he is going to imitate God consciously. The brothers actually are going to repeatedly conclude that what Joseph is doing to them is actually what God is doing to them. It's exactly what he wants them to think. He is looking for them to find repentance towards God, to be reconciled towards God before they are reconciled with him. So he keeps his identity concealed. He lets them interact with God for a while before he'll reveal who he is. First thing that uh, he... um, Um, lets them see in chapter 42 is the God of justice and judgment. The plan begins. He takes Simeon hostage. He tells them that they must bring that younger brother Benjamin down to Egypt if they want Simeon back. And immediately they conclude that God is punishing them for their sin against Joseph more than 20 years earlier. Did you notice that? Verse 21, they said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother, that's Joseph. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come uh, come upon us. That's absolutely right. You see, they think it comes direct from God. That incident had obviously hung in their memories for years. They remembered details. Joseph pleading for his life. They remembered their own heartlessness. They refused to listen. They're filled with guilt and remorse. But remorse is not repentance. Regret is not repentance. Regretting that we did something, particularly regretting the consequences to us, is not repentance. Hardened criminals languishing in jail regret what they did in one sense because they are being punished. But they are not truly penitent. 
Jesus repeatedly portrayed actually the misery of hell in which people profoundly regret the sin which sent them there because it has brought punishment on them. But they are not repentant. They're miserable. They see the consequences of their sin. But they are not repentant. They hate the punishment that's come upon them. In some ways they wish they hadn't sinned. But they do not hate sin itself profoundly. And they do not fully take responsibility for that sin. Notice Reuben in verse 22. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? Wouldn't you? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. Actually, in the story, Reuben was totally ineffectual. Okay, he offered a few um, ideas about how they could um, uh, avoid doing what most of them wanted to do, but he, but he didn't follow it through. He actually left them. And now he tries to claim that he is entirely innocent, that they're to blame and he's just suffering as an innocent party. That is the shallow attitude to our sin that we so often demonstrate. And it is not enough. Joseph sends them on their way, weeping privately. And then he raises the stakes in the game. He secretly returns the silver that they brought to uh, pay for the grain, um, putting it in their sack, and so that when they um, uh, find it, they look like thieves. Verse 28 of uh, chapter 42. My silver has been returned, said a brother to his, to his other brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? There it is again. What is this that God is doing to us? Joseph is letting them feel what, the, the, the God of judgment in their lives. What will they do when they realise God is a God who judges well, they return to their father, but he refuses to let Benjamin go down to Egypt. Verse 36. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. This is very interesting. Jacob, notice, says, You have deprived me of my children. Making it plain that he holds these brothers responsible not only for Simeon's loss, notice, but for Joseph's. Is that because he thought they should have uh, protected Joseph against this wild animal that uh, um, Sir Joseph was supposed to have been eaten by? <coughs> or is it actually because Jacob has a sneaking suspicion that something else happened out there in the desert? Difficult to hide guilty secrets in families, you know. Jacob doesn't trust these brothers. Reuben makes an effort to try and persuade his father to uh, uh, let them go, go down. Even on the lives of his sons, he says. And Jacob says, effectively, I don't trust you, Reuben. And would you? 
ineffectual man who really hasn't stood up for what was right. Their understanding of the God of judgment and justice, you see, has been important for them, but it hasn't yet done them much good. It's induced remorse, anxiety, but it's basically resulted in Reuben at least trying to shift the blame and the family still full of mistrust and unspoken suspicions and unresolved issues. We must not be in any doubt. God is a God of justice and judgment. What Joseph presents to them in terms of God's judgment is a truth about God that is vitally important. God is just. God does not forget our sins. Now, perhaps we've not sold our brother into slavery, but every one of us, if we honestly assess our lives, must recognise that there is a chill that runs down our spine when we hear that God is just. And it should. This is scary stuff. Many people try to deny that God would ever be a, uh, uh, a ruthless judge, but the Bible is clear that God is absolutely and perfectly just. Joseph knows the brothers need to see that. It's not all they need to see, but they do need to see that. They do need to know God has not forgotten this sin of 20 years ago. And God is quite capable of letting it catch up with them. And God has not forgotten our sin. And if we don't deal with it appropriately, God is more than capable of letting it catch up with us. Joseph introduces them then to the God of justice and judgment. But then the mood changes in chapters 43 and 44. Now we start to see the God of mercy and of grace. It um, begins with an interaction between Judah and uh, Jacob. Judah makes a very bold promise. Verse 8, Judah said to Israel, that's Jacob his father, chapter 43, send the boy Benjamin along with me and we'll go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die because they're starving again. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will bear the blame before you all the days of my life. And Jacob voices in response to that, ultimately, a new hope in God. Verse 13. Take your brother also and go back to the man, that's Joseph, at once. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As far as for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Perhaps, says Jacob, God will be merciful 
brothers return to Egypt in fear and trembling. They quickly return the silver to um, uh, Joseph that had been put in their sack, assuring um, the steward that it was all a big mistake and they weren't thieves after all. And they get a most amazing reply in chapter 43, verse uh, 23. It's all right, said the steward. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. And then he brought Simeon out to them. He's lying, of course. The steward, he's been told to say that by, by Joseph. Joseph wants the brothers to believe that there's been a miracle here. A miracle of grace. The silver they found in their sacks was not the silver that they'd paid for the grain with. It was other silver that had just come out of nowhere. God had given them. The God God of your father. Do you see that? Jacob remembered. Perhaps God will be merciful. Joseph says the God whom your father worships has given you this gracious gift, this generous gift. Would God do such a thing? Would God treat them with such amazing generosity? Would God give them what they don't deserve? These brothers are worried about the God of justice and judgment. Perhaps they're starting to have to rethink. Joseph arrives, sees his beloved brother, Benjamin. Benjamin's the only other son of their their mother, Rachel. So there's a special bond between them. And uh, uh, Joseph keeping his anonymity, invokes God's grace again. Verse 29. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. Um, uh, Sorry, it's not verse 29, is it? It's, uh, no, I've read the wrong one. Um, So verse 29. He looked looked about, saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, and asked, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. As I've already read, he was deeply moved in that situation again. And he said to Benjamin, God be gracious to you. God be a God of grace to you. God be a God of mercy and generosity to you. And now, now, the culmination of the test is coming together. They've learned to fear the God of justice, these brothers. But will they trust the God of grace? They've been presented with a miracle of God's grace, the silver. Will they accept a miracle of God's grace and generosity in one of the brothers' lives? Years ago, we read in Genesis 37 that it was Jacob's generosity to Joseph, albeit crudely done, albeit that it generated a uh, a nasty arrogance in that young man. But fundamentally it was Jacob's generosity 
to young Joseph that had caused their hostility to him. But in, the, in their culture, one son had to inherit the mantle of lead son. Can they cope with that generosity to another brother? Joseph sits them down at a dinner table in 43-34. When the portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. They can. They can accept God's grace. God's overwhelming generosity to one of their brothers. Five times as much food for Benjamin. Years ago they'd have seethed with anger to see that. But now they eat and drink freely with him. Something has happened to them. Perhaps they realised what a ruthless master justice is. Once they longed for justice against young, uh, uh, young Joseph when their, brother was, uh, their father was so generous. But now they felt the weight of God's justice uh, bearing down on their lives. And perhaps they thought justice is not something to long for after all. Perhaps grace is something to long for. So they accept the grace that Joseph showers on Benjamin. And still Joseph doesn't let up. Still Joseph wants more. Still Joseph puts more pressure on them. He's looking, looking for something more than that. More than them just being able to accept his generosity to, to, to uh, Benjamin. He repeats the trick of his last visit, but this time not only returning the silver into their sacks as they return the head off back to Canaan, but putting his special cup in Benjamin's sack he then sends his steward after them, who catches up with them, exposes the fact that the silver and the cup is with them. And all they can do, chapter 44, verse 14, is plead for mercy. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers returned back to him. They threw themselves to the ground before him. Judah says something very interesting then. Verse 16. What can we say, my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. Now we are my Lord's slaves, we ourselves, and the one who was found to have the cup. Judah knows that they're innocent of this specific crime. How can, I, how can we prove our innocence, he says. But he also knows that in a deeper way he and his brothers are guilty men. And he says that. God has uncovered our guilt. Don't know how that cup and these, these things got into my bag. That's a mystery and I, I'm not guilty for that. But actually, I know at a deeper level I'm guilty of far worse. Perhaps God is just exposing that 
through this particular circumstance. Judah has gone a long way now towards repentance. He has accepted deep in his heart there is a principle of guilt that he cannot escape. He cannot make excuses even if in certain details he's not guilty. At a fundamental level he is guilty. And he knows that all he can do before this all-powerful, mysterious man is throw himself at his feet. But Joseph wants more. Joseph keeps pressing. He turns up the heat again. Um, Joseph says, no, no, no. I'm not going to accept all of you going into, uh, going into slavery. I'm going to pick on this one who had the cup. This Benjamin. You can go free. He can stay as a slave. And now there is an exact replication of what they originally did to Joseph, set up as an opportunity before their eyes. They can get rid of the new favourite son without, without actually plotting against him at all. Joseph has put it on their lap. And Judah says no. He begins a long speech about how much their father would be pained by that. Oh yes, they've seen the pain that their sin caused over decades. And it culminates with this, verse 32. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant, me, remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let the boy return with his brothers. He, he is horrified by the prospect of repeating that sin so much he'll go into slavery for the rest of his life rather than repeat that, rather than cause another bout of pain, another wave of misery, a wave of misery that may cause the death of his father. He has learned to loathe his sin with a deep loathing. He cannot repay for it. As we'll see in a minute. But he can expend every ounce of his energy, devote his whole life, the rest of his life, actually to avoiding the repetition of it. That is what repentance is. Repentance is a deep, personal loathing of our sin. It is a deep, personal acknowledgement of our sinfulness. And it is a commitment to live a totally new life. Judah effectively says, if I have to pay with my life for that, I'll do it. But amazingly, he doesn't have to. Once he's got to that point, once he's made that statement, 
it's enough. It's enough for Joseph. And it's enough for Joseph's God, who is not only a God of justice, he is a God of mercy. But chapter 45, Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. He cried out, Make everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly, the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Perhaps Joseph is going to punish us. But Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they'd done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for telling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Uh, uh, we'll look at more of that next week, no, two weeks' time. But uh, just for now, notice, Joseph does not exact justice. He simply offers them grace. Indeed, you see, Joseph has paid for their sins. In fact, he suffered in slavery and prison and exile. He could perfectly legitimately expect that they pay in the same way. But he says no. I'll pay for that sin and you don't need to. And for us as we face God, you see, Jesus, the Son of God, has paid for our sin with beating and crucifixion and death. And when we come as Judah came, not professing our innocence, not trying to divert the blame away, but come with a deep loathing for that sin and throw ourselves at God's feet. And Jesus says, I'm not going to pay you back. I paid. You don't need to. And we need to see the God of justice. We need to understand that all sin must be paid for. But we need to see the God of mercy and grace too. Who will pay for our sin in his son Jesus Christ as we find in our hearts the ability to repent as Judah did but that's not fair I hear you cry then how come I can have, I might have to pay for my little sins when someone who's committed great big sins they just need to throw themselves at God's feet and uh, they go free and are in heaven. No, that's a penitent heart does not say that's not fair. That's what Joseph tested, do you see? As he uh, poured out his generosity in, Be in Benjamin. A penitent heart simply is able to rejoice with God's generosity to another person. 
Because this world will never work simply by justice. God is not fair. He is not fair. He is overwhelmingly generous. All we can do is throw ourselves at his feet and say, please, be generous to me. And maybe that you need to do that for the first time. Maybe that you haven't really interacted with how guilty you are before God. We are all guilty before the God of justice. There is no escaping it. Maybe that you need to turn away from that sin, to not deny your guilt, to throw yourself at God's feet for his mercy. He'll be a God of mercy and grace to you. It may be that you did that some time ago, perhaps many years ago. Once we do it for the first time, that's not the only time we need to do it. We need to be those who live like Judah who live as people who know the profundity of our guilt before God and who simply throw ourselves at God's feet and say, I turn away from that. Please have mercy on me. That is repentance. That is what Joseph wanted to see in his brothers and that is what God wants to see in you and me